0: (music) Thank you.
1: mandatory redistribution party. This episode is about nature, both as in animals and also human nature and kind of both. What do you think human nature is? Do you and I share the same nature? Does human nature just mean what humans do? Because if it does, it's a bit all over the place, isn't it? Like cruelty, compassion, hatred, love, liking roller coasters, not liking roller coasters. Uh, they're all part of human nature. Some human societies thought slavery or divine right monarchy was natural. What is nature? Nature can mean both the inherent character of a thing or nature can mean all the stuff on earth that isn't, uh, human. It isn't us. Like an oxbow lake. Or a massive rock. Like massive. Your hardest mate couldn't dream a shift in it. Or like a wolf. Or like a cow. Are cows comrades? Cows? Mooers. Moo. Those. They say been fields. cows are lumpenproles.
2: Cows are lumpenproles. Lumpen Why? Cows. Why? And um, because they're eternally subjugated and don't do anything about it and have no class consciousness and can't achieve class. Consciousness. Can we raise? Yeah, well, I think can we raise their class consciousness? Can we raise the class consciousness? Cow revolution. Is there a reason why you've picked just cows? Uh, literally the first thing that's come into my yeah, head. Yeah, fair enough. Um, <laughs> I just thought we were going to do a gotcha about some sort of historical event. That- <laughs> <laughs> You're like, has there actually been a cow yeah.
1: revolution? Really going to be like on my yeah, face. Yeah, turned on the farm. Um,
2: can you raise the class consciousness of cows or, or any livestock? Hmm.
1: You could condition them to attack farmers, but they wouldn't know why they were doing it. I think cows rebel. Because cows are, you know, cows, like all animals that have some brain about them, have like a rich inner life, don't they? Like cows can be lonely and sad and happy. Animals have, instinctually know, you've seen
2: like one monkey gets a bit of cucumber and one mm. monkey gets a strawberry and they know that's not fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The cows have an understanding that, like, other cows could be having a really nice time. What what cows would need to see is free cows, then you'd have a revolution. The problem is is that all cows are subjugated equally. If they could look beyond the fence and see free cows living a free, liberated life, that farmer would be gored within minutes.
1: Yeah, I suppose because it's not another cow who has enslaved the cows, right? Yeah. It's, it's a fight. So it's just a totally other thing. It's like if the bourgeoisie were like, we lizards, David Icke style. Yeah. Yeah. Or just they live. Yeah. Yeah.
2: If the Which cows didn't... had the special sunglasses.
1: Yeah. And could see that the. So a, cat, a cow. We give them the special sunglasses and then they look at a farmer and see an evil cow. Yeah. Okay. Bang. So I was thinking
2: of the scene where he like sees the uh, adverts and it yeah. says,
1: oh, consumer, bang. Drink milk.
2: But I was thinking with cows, they don't need, they just need to be able to just read. <laughs> And they would understand what's going on <laughs> enclosure slaughterhouse so, okay oh. not so good
1: Moo. yeah what where i'm going with this is uh ages ago in my capitalism explainer i had like a throwaway thing about people on the left generally being veggie and i started looking into when i was writing it i was like oh can i is this worth explaining now uh, and then just thought about it and then thought oh no it's too it's too big a it's too big a, a beast. But then I was thinking like the two, the two things rarely explicitly connect, right? You've got like Marxism, animal liberation, and they're yeah. like two kind of separate things. Like the Bolsheviks aren't like trying to emancipate the chickens and like the RSPCA aren't trying to raise class consciousness, mm-hmm. right? They're like two separate things. But you see them as
2: functionally identical or existing on, a, on the same spectrum of, of liberation.
1: I don't know if I do, but that's that's the... I'm just like... I'm if we I'm, I'm, I'm right handy to is I am confused about this. If Let's we lived in the it.
2: Soylent Green universe, yeah. then those struggles would become
1: identical, wouldn't they? Oh, because we're being eaten as well? Yeah. We'd have to be being eaten by the animals. What?
2: No, I'm not saying symmetrical. What? I'm just saying that the fact that our form,
1: our oppression takes. Well, no, if you look at... Uh, Like factory farming. Factory farming. (laughs) Yeah, I got confused by what you said. Sorry, but (laughs) (laughs) factory farming is the same. You know, you know how like they enclosed the common land, and then um, people didn't have access to the commons, so became instead of peasants, they became the proletariat, and then they became wage labourers, right? That happened to animals as well. Animals like factory farming developed. Like you didn't have uh, in feudalism, you didn't have like a giant. Chicken farm with the KFC chicken combine machine, like,
2: right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so the more that we've been forced into like tighter factories. The more they were farmed in a way we used, we use factory as the metaphor for the way we farmed our animals. Yeah. In, in, in factories, it starts off as a description of how we treated humans. Yeah. Industrial,
1: yeah. industrialization happened to them as well. Capitalism yeah. happened to them as well, which is why, like, I'm a vegetarian, but I'm a like dreadful vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Like, once every six months, as I snap, I have like, coming back from a gig, some sort of half eleven shame bucket of chicken. Uh, and then, uh, What else have I done? Oh, I had a pork cube at that wedding I was at the other day because I was having an anxiety attack. And then that really, that just sent me under more, if anything. But I'm vegetarian, not out of like, I mean, I've just told, I've told transgressions generally, most of the time, 95%. But there's a difference between,
2: you know, we do a thing with vegetarianism where we don't, we don't, uh, distinguish between like praxis and belief, mm. but we do it with other things. Yeah, like I could say, "Oh, I'm a Marxist," but sometimes I will buy Coca-Cola. And oh, I was like, yeah, okay. "You've read Das Kapital," and yet yeah, I yeah, see you've yeah. got well, a Pepsi in your hand. Yeah, a vegetarian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like sometimes you'll break, or you'll find out. Oh, there's gelatin in this. Yeah, it's, but you'll say, "Oh, I'm not a vegetarian anymore." Well, it's just, just the way we treat that that form of practice.
1: Re- the reason I'm vegetarian is for environmental reasons. Because mm-hmm. uh, I was like, I think that's like the most kind of convincing thing. Argument is is like the, we are, we've created an environmental crisis, and one of the things you can do that might help that is consume less meat because meat has a huge environmental impact. I know lots of other things to do as well, like clothes, blah blah blah, but that's not what we're talking about. And I think that's persuasive, right? But it's not meat; it's ca- meat under capitalism. If you go to some like indigenous tribe or some commune where there's like the chickens aren't in a factory thing, and they're just like eating worms out of the dirt, or eating waste stuff from the farm or from the humans, like that's not destroying the environment. That's yeah. part of like its own little ecosystem. Equally like deforesting a whole fucking forest to plant soy, even if like, yes, down the line, that's that's still the meat industry because it's gonna go and feed cattle or whatever. Like monoculture, Monsanto, megacorp, like farming under capitalism mm-hmm. is the cause of the environmental disaster, not meat in, inherently, you know? Yeah. So there's the environmental thing. Which kind of overlaps with the struggle against capitalism, right? So that there's a no, there's a point of overlap there. The other point of overlap is exploitation, right? So animals are exploited. Factory farm chickens, even like bees making honey, are kind of exploited sure. by that definition they're of life. They're alienated from their own meat. They're alienated from their own- lab- They're alienated from their labour, right? <laughs> they are. Um, but
2: it's not labour. It's alienated from their own sinews. Their own- yeah, Bones and yeah.
1: flesh. Yeah, yeah. We were with the honey I was seeing the bees making the honey right oh, yeah, but we're yeah. not eating bees they taste rank um, <laughs> you ever seen a dog eat a wasp and they do that like uh, what you've not <laughs> seen that i um, <laughs> seen that loads that uh, I've seen that loads hashtag dog wasp <laughs> you've
2: seen that I've loads I've seen that loads
1: I think I've just been around dogs that eat wasps so <laughs> but the exploitation thing because uh, the, the, the just the basic harm argument like oh don't We shouldn't eat animals because it's morally bad to kill things. Like I'm instinctively, I'm like, oh yes, that's bad. I don't want to kill things. But you also kill animals to protect crops. So like, you got to stop rabbits and insects from eating crops. So you have to use, well, you don't have to, but something. Corporations are definitely going to be using horrible pesticides that kill lots of things and poison the water and kill the fish. And I think
2: I think the inherent immorality of of harming or hurting animals. Is a real muddy territory yeah, that we're not going to. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. It's a, a it's on. a swamp, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Whereas the environmental one, that's much more kind of clear, mm-hmm. and but so is exploitation because <laughs> if you if you kill a rabbit to stop eating uh, cabbages, you're still not exploiting it. That like if but if you're getting a rabbit to like well, a rabbit's a bad example. Yeah, but, but the, you, do you see what I mean.
2: The, the this is the weeds I don't want to get into. Yeah, but like what it's worse to exploit someone
1: than to kill them. No, I don't think it is. Worse, but I think it's a more coherent argument because it's the same argument as the critique of capitalism. Unpack that again for me. Exploitation is why capitalism is wrong.
2: Okay. And so if you are an anti-capitalist, you have to be a vegetarian.
1: No. Um. I think, no, I'm saying where, uh, my original point is leftism. Yeah. Animal liberation. Okay. Separate. We, we got there, yeah? Yeah. And then my second point there is, and then, and then my talking. points were actually, oh, there's actually some stuff that's quite similar here uh-huh. in the the arguments within them. So one is that, we need to stop capitalism to avoid environmental catastrophe.
2: Yeah.
1: Eating meat, and a good argument for us not doing that, is because it will avoid environmental catastrophe. Uh-huh. Okay, so that's one similarity between the two. Yeah. A second similarity between the two is that one reason capitalism is bad is yeah. because of exploitation. Another reason the meat industry is bad is because of exploitation. That's, yeah. That was my point.
2: Yeah, pretty good point. Like you're just saying capitalism causes exploitation, but you're just saying it in two different ways.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you agree? With, yeah, so my, that's yeah, my yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're there we agree, eventually. We agree. <laughs> 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 so my point is that they, they they seem separate, but actually they've got these fundamental similar things. But the more meaningful thing is the capitalism, right? That's the thing you. Yeah,
2: well, that's, that's the thing what you I'm fight. trying to say. Is that yeah, you're making the, the distinction isn't there if you just see these both of these things are capitalism. The meat industry is just. A facet of capitalism. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But it's weird because a lot of the animal liberation, like, you're not going to see P- Peter put out anti capitalist yeah. stuff. But um, what,
2: the only distinction I see is that with vegetarianism, there's more of a desire to do ethical consumption with vegetarianism than there is with all of capitalism, because
1: with all of capitalism it's impossible. Exactly. So why it's so strange to me, because the environmental and exploitation arguments are two of the most convincing arguments for being vegan or vegetarian.
2: Well, I think it's because if, if the meat from the children who died to make my phones mm. were in the phone and I could see it on the screen... <laughs> <laughs> then I'd probably be a bit more squeamish with it. I and mean, so when I see meat, I'm just a bit too close to the violence.
1: Yeah. But okay. it's like
2: the, you know, the fingers of the the Chinese factory workers who jumped off the, it's made off of the some, building yeah, yeah, yeah. had to be like
1: on me as a as a key ring. Yeah, your, the, your Nintendo Switch is just made out of a femur. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I see what you're saying. I mean, we're describing a very on-the-nose art installation
1: here. <laughs> <laughs> Consumer activism does almost fuck all to undermine capitalism, right? The
2: thing about vegetarianism and veganism is is it because it became so popular as a piece of boycott-style activism Mm. that it has started making some changes, but it's just that capitalism is now absorbing... Yeah, it's just adapting. It's
1: just going, we'll use a new kind of exploitation to make these vegan products. Yeah, like McDonald's and Nestle who are not socialist organisations, are (laughs) launching like a veggie burger. Yeah, exactly. So it's just, you know, the the Che Guevara on the T-shirt. You need to understand that consumer, just consumer choice isn't gonna change that. But I've made that same mistake of like, I'm like, oh, this is a thing. I can do. But, but, I, think, but I, I think
2: you can frame the argument in a completely different way. It's like, I won't buy Nestle products. I don't consciously think I'm going to take down Nestle. No. But it makes me feel sad to buy Nestle products. Yeah, exactly. It's okay to do that. It's, Sometimes it, activism is actually just a form of self-care.
1: Yeah, it's an internal thing and I, think, I do think that's what it is. I think it's like seeking agency because you've got so little power under capitalism to do anything. And one of the few things that, they will give you is you have agency and control over what you consume mm-hmm. so if you choose ah i'm not going to consume this animal flesh i'm going to consume vegetables yeah. instead that's a choice you've got some you, you one you're avoiding you're diminishing your own guilt great but it's for yourself mm-hmm. rather than like a, a movement necessarily and then you have a little bit of a sense of control it's the same reason people like more people go to the gym now like yeah okay on one hand people like maybe more conscious of their own health, Mm -hmm. but they're like, people are alienated and don't have control of things. And then what do you control? Oh, I can control my diet and I can control my body and I can spend time being, being very strict about (laughs) (laughs) eating wasps. I can, I can control what's going in here and what, you know, how strong I am is a form of expression. So that, and then you got the kind of overlap of those two things of like gym and vegan health food of, of people's uh kind of source of a sense of self a sense of but agency. there's a difference
2: because veganism comes with some kind of moral attachment hmm. and no one's like i'm going to the gym because it's to help of the planet um veganism yeah, is just different true. because that's it has true. that that element that veganism inevitably you have to justify the fact you're making sacrifice like veganism's tough
1: i think there's definitely an element of the moralization with the gym goers who like probably think they're better than the not gym goers that's probably true of certain vegans as well
2: oh well the, i've had self-discipline the kind of piousness Do you know yeah. when you go to like the vegan festivals there's there's like two there's two kinds of vegans that i think are too far there's the raw vegans mm. and then there's the like bodybuilder vegans right, yeah, and the bodybuilder yeah, yeah, yeah. vegans are just like they hair, like they're the dialectic between two extremes <laughs> they've internalized two kinds of shame <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, I can save the planet by because every be fucking hedge. I think there is this thing of like all oh, vegans and all these like really like stick thin, really weedy, like those Mr. Muscle, yeah. weedy mascot characters. And they're like, no, I'm going to save the planet and I'm going to be unfeasibly big mm. just on protein. But I mean, if you go to the vegan festivals, you'll see what capitalism is very much at play. There. Oh, it's corrupted the hell out of it. Like it? vegan water was one of some of the most amazing things I've seen. Jesus, harvested in a more, They're like, I think it's refined from trees, from the sky sap or something. Oh, like. right. Okay, yeah, it's very, very expensive
1: and probably really labour-intensive and industrialised. I would imagine if they're I think harvesting it's boutique water now, from but the trees. But if it does well enough,
2: yeah, you'll have some Eastern Europeans oh, having to like. God. Tap trees for water.
1: Well, see, yeah, then the the problem isn't...
2: Imagine having to do cheap minimum wage labour to, like, tap trees for water, but you're not allowed to drink any of that water. You've got to drink your own water from a different
1: <sighs> source. Fuck. Well, yeah. Well, it's just, it's... And I'm not saying you shouldn't do anything about animal liberation or veganism or vegetarianism when your I priority know, should be so... Because over- that's that's the same as being like, ooh, um, solving racism doesn't get rid of capitalism, so fuck that, you know, like that kind of stupid way of thinking it's it's I'm you, not
2: yeah that's like proper like SWP kind of logic but yeah, like that's where SWP yeah, yeah, yeah. just completely alienated like anti-racism mm. and anti-sexism
1: stuff yeah because they did not understand intersectionality
2: and look what I got yeah yeah. yeah yeah I'm not saying oh the only struggle is like the one big struggle but at the same time I don't think people should start thinking that ethical consumerism there is a risk that people think they're doing their bit <laughs> yeah <laughs> by having a, like a Linda McCartney sausage and there's, I think everyone needs to have a lot of humility about like how ineffectual everyone's behavior mm. is. We're all looking for ways to sort of alleviate a feeling of shame and weirdness and guilt. And doing so is perfectly fine. And I absolutely and to celebrate
1: re- And to regain a sense of control. Yeah. And all yeah. that's
2: really fine. I just think we need to understand that we we can't... We can destroy a meat industry and then just have, you know, the palm oil industry double so it can deal with loads of new vegan foods that require it. Like There'll always be mm. a new way that, that capitalism will find to just eat through the planet. Yeah, It just might not involve chicken flesh anymore. Are chickens comrades? I mean, why not? I mean, chicken run actually yeah. implies that yeah. they're already got a, yeah, yeah. if nothing else, sort of
1: POW kind of perspective of the world. Definitely. A key piece yeah. of um, radical literature. <laughs> Yeah, fuck Orwell's Animal Farm, get on chicken run.
2: A few years ago, I went to visit my friend Liam, who at this time lived on a miniature yacht in Brighton Marina, while he finished his cultural and critical theory degree. Yachts are normally a signifier of wealth and luxury because owning and maintaining a boat as a hobby takes an amount of money and spare time that no just society would allow any individual to have. But moments into my visit, I realised the reality of living on a miniature yacht full-time will melt those associations into the brine. During the off-season, the marina is a shanty town of people lured into floating caravans by the promise of cheap rent in an increasingly expensive city. At night, seagulls drop crustaceans from great heights, great enough to shatter the tough carapaces and their shattering bodies reverberate across the blackened marina like someone cracking walnuts in the dark. To relieve yourself after hours, you need to pick your way through the detritus of dying crabs and their exploded bones. That night, we drank tiny bottles of European lager and I watched Liam roll joints on a dog-eared version of Francis Fukuyama's The End of History. While I said I didn't want any because it sets off my anxiety both about the book and the drugs. The worst thing about it is I think the whole scene captures a lifestyle that conforms to someone's romantic left-wing ideal and worse yet is that I know that person their name's Liam and they're a dear friend. In the morning he hit me with a question, have you heard of Kropotkin's crab? I didn't understand the question. Peter Kropotkin is a naturalist and anarchist who came up with the idea of mutual aid. The principle of voluntary mutual cooperation, which is basically a, a founding idea of anarchist organization. Kropotkin's epiphany moment came when he was watching a crab that had somehow got flipped over and trapped on his back at Brighton Sea Life Centre in 1882. Another crab came along, thought nothing of it, just stuck out a claw, pushed him right back the right way, and mutual aid was born. Liam suggested we go to visit Brighton Sea Life Centre and find and see the crab for ourselves. No, that that crab will be dead, I responded. Liam says he believes, I thought crabs basically live forever. This did not seem right to me. This seemed very implausible. I was still remembering the sound of walnuts in the night. At the Sea Life Center, every tank had two to three colorful fish that were named colorful and conventionally attractive. The fish was sexy is what I'm saying. But every tank was also filled out with these hordes of nondescript grey proletarian fish that were unnamed, unloved, and unfuckable. Really wasn't too comfortable with this strange caste system, especially in one of the landmarks of anarchist intellectual discovery. What it was lacking, though, was any discernible crab section. And as a last resort, we did eventually go up to ask a enthusiastic mid-twenties members of staff. We approached very hesitantly and asked, Hi, um sorry, uh, excuse me, do you know where we could find Kropotkin's crown? And they very earnestly responded with, oh, I'm sorry, I've only worked here a few months, I don't really know everyone yet. And I had to very uh, slowly and deliberately say, oh, no, Um, uh, so Peter Kropotkin is um, a a naturalist and anarchist philosopher from the 19th century, and... He's, he saw a crab here in 1882, and um, it was at this point I really started to lose my nerve. Something really felt, uh, so I really felt off. So I changed tack and I asked, How long do um, crabs live, actually? And they immediately came back with, Crabs very rarely live over 20 to 30 years. Oh, yeah, of course. Thank you. Sorry. Goodbye. Sorry. I'm very sorry, goodbye. There's something dreadful, m- maybe even disgusting, about slowly disengaging from that conversation. I knew that crab couldn't possibly be alive. And yet I'd somehow been lured into asking after it, like I was a time traveller. Lobsters, it turns out. Lobsters can live forever. Some weird genetic fluke means that they can produce healthy telemerase, which is like... It's the enzyme that protects the ends of DNA strands and it prevents replication mistakes. The reason we die of old age is that our telomerase becomes weakened or we don't produce enough of it, so it doesn't protect our DNA so that they can kind of uncoil a little bit the ends and we can replicate badly and eventually enough mistakes and our body stops making sense and we die. Uh, Not lobsters though, they can produce that for basically as long as they like. So, getting older doesn't actually affect their chance of dying. But they're not immortal. They die naturally because they never stop growing. They grow and they molt and create a new hard exoskeleton every few years. Eventually, they just can't support their own size and they die. Either they contract diseases because of their poor metabolism and immune system, or in some cases they fail to molt off their previous exoskeletons but still continue to grow within it. So if anyone needs any heavy-handed metaphors, unlike the plucky crab helping out its inverted mate, having a wacky 30 years and then popping its clogs, the lobster soldiers on, only to be crushed alive by its pre-programmed trajectory of perpetual growth.
1: Do you think Anything lives in the sewers.
2: I mean, just um, rats, bacteria. I don't think there's mutants or alligators. Alligators Shh. was the myth in New York, right? Alligators, yeah. And what did that come from? People were like getting alligators and chucking them out. Baby our equivalent. Because in New York, people were getting baby alligators and then they got big, as they inevitably would, and people mm. flushed them. And that's where that myth came from. But our equivalent is the. Terrapins? No, I was going to say our equivalent of that myth is, like, the big cats that are living on the moors. Oh, yeah. Because, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, gentry yeah, used yeah, to yeah. have, oh, I've got this quite large kitten. Yeah. Oh, it's a tiger. Yeah, yeah. I need yeah, to get yeah, rid yeah, of the... Yeah. No, it wasn't that. It was that law Axe was passed. It wasn't that they flushed it due to their own self-preservation. Mm. There was a law passed, right, saying stop having big cats. Is that a law? Well... I don't know if it's still a law now, but there was there was something passed which ruled out all these aristocrats who, like... Because it used to be aristocrats would just buy a camel or a giraffe and they yeah. just roam the lands and... Well, the, the animal or the aristocrat riding them? Both, I mean, both. The aristocrat would roam the lands anyway. The giraffe
1: now in the land is the new addition to what roams. Apparently, giraffes didn't evolve the long neck to eat higher up stuff. They just eat the same like level of stuff as whatever other animals are around there. They use it to fight. They use it to A, fight, and B, other giraffes find the long neck sexy. Oh. So it's like, that's what it's selected for. It's like the longer the neck, the hotter the giraffe.
2: So both sexes find the long neck sexy. It's not like there's no dimorphism. There's not like you wouldn't get like a female giraffe has like a normal
1: horse's (laughs) head. (laughs) (laughs) And then the male giraffe has this full neck. Yeah, it must go both ways. I was thinking of of like peacocks where like those traits are selected for.
2: Mm. Yeah. That's nice, actually, that that what they find sexy, they find sexy in each other. Yeah. 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 That's what I kind of like about a lot of um, quadrupeds. They're oh, not yeah. like very gendered. Is that your top? What your top quadruped? Top quads? Yeah. Uh, rhino's got to be up there, right up there. Which rhino? Probably one of the. I'm going to pick one that's going to go extinct in mm-hmm. the hope that maybe this podcast will <laughs> clinch it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I used to like the rhino Pokemon. There's the there's the little one, Rhyhorn. Rhyhorn. is it rhydon that he evolves rhydon's into rhydon's not a rhino though cuz he's bipedal isn't he rhydon he's a rhino that's yeah i think he's become bipedal he's gone onto his back legs and got like claws yeah i suppose he's not a rhino anymore well, and I, I think, think he's his horns become... a drill it's yeah. a drill once you it, down
2: on your back legs and you, you know, that's, a, that's a that's a
1: transhuman isn't it Over yeah industrial trans-
2: technology it's definitely
1: industrial technology because how is the drill nose working like I, that has to be mechanical you can't have a biological you can't have a biological drill no nope. so what are your other uh, you got rhino
2: yeah rhino um the things to get excited about is like proper uh, megafauna, megafauna
1: mm. that just hasn't died out. You're like the 16-foot alligator walking across the golf course that's like a dinosaur yeah. on that that video. That or guy.
2: Um, moose as well. That yeah. do, they don't get enough credit, but big boys. Add, like full, like grown book yeah. mooses. Yeah, daddy moose. Yeah. Big boy. They're terrifying. They're mm. like... They, like, tower over, like, a, a 4 by 4 I
1: think moose noise might be one of the noises in either the Jurassic Park T-Rex noise or the Star Wars Wookiee noise. Because, you know, they're, like, just fucked yeah. up audio samples of animals. I think moose noise is, is in there. I could
2: imagine that. They're mm. going to have a very deep bellow. Mm. And you know that like There's something really weird That happens to like Moose's horns They grow like <laughs> skin All over them and then What they've... the fuck There's <laughs> yeah. skin on the horn They grow skin All over their horns Oh no thanks And then their skin They've got what? to like Rub their skin off In the spring
1: Oh f- What Are you <laughs> yeah. having a laugh I
2: don't just believe it Is that real Yeah they grow skin All over their horns What, <laughs> <laughs> what? I mean, look like an idiot. And then they've got to manually you... scratch off their skin. I can't tell if this is real. I don't know how to prove it to you. They scratch off their skin, and it's all bloody as well. Like, There's all blood and bits of all yeah, skin obviously... on their horns. Oh, <laughs> that is rank. Yeah, it's very strange. I mean, right, the yeah. moose
1: can't do anything about it, so I guess maybe I shouldn't find yeah, it rank. But is, in it in is, Instinctively, I find that quite Oh, rank.
2: instinctively having to scratch off skin off your horns. Yeah. But even just saying that, imagining any context in which that sentence isn't
1: revolting is quite hard. Would you like an antler? One? Ant- <laughs> Antlers. Like if you add when, when a I was or I When
2: I was young, I desperately wanted a tail. I think that was the one
1: I thought was like the best mm. appendage. Definitely good for, useful for balance. You can use, it's a third limb. You can I pick had, stuff I up. I had
2: this idea that yeah. I could use it to hold things and I could use it to like hang on branches. Mm. And, like a lemur tail. I wanted that level of... Yeah.
1: Um, Imagine gyms. There's like the the tail area. Everyone mm. just like doing pull-ups, but reverse. What, don't forget tail down. <laughs> yeah, don't <no>. forget. <laughs> yeah.
2: um, but antlers, horrific. Like... Ant- you would not get through doorways. Not for doors, yeah. The when only you thing you that sideways? they use for mate. is to gore your enemies.
1: And I'm not about to gore my enemies. Yes, yeah, because you haven't got antlers. If you had antlers, game on. Come after Morley, going to get antlered. Although, well, I suppose they might then have that. If, if it's a world where you've got antlers.
2: That is the most incriminating way to, to get revenge on anyone. What, antler attack? The idea that you've made it really easy for the detective. Oh, there's antler
1: fragments in here.
2: Yeah. Or, or there's a witness saying it was done with antlers. Yeah. Well, let's look through our database at the one individual who has antlers who is also in the news because they've Unlovely. got antlers. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: They wouldn't mess, though, would they? Hmm? They wouldn't they, mess. They, they wouldn't, wouldn't try and mess. arrest me. Yeah, cops bursting on you sitting there with your antlers. I can charge one SWAT shield and mm-hmm. then that's it. I'm gone. You'd be Some aristocrat would buy you anyway and then you'd be safe because you'd be, you don't belong to an aristocrat and then your property and the cops can't do anything.
2: I guess if I was able to shirk my humanity completely you're not actually allowed to um, like I looked into this you're not allowed to like enslave yourself even if you want to enslave yourself not that you own yourself it's like just voluntarily become a slave yeah yeah. you're not allowed to do that Sean Morley
1: 750 pounds that's like one of the the, the last
2: rights that we don't have (laughs)
1: right yeah yeah we can only you can't sell yourself as a slave you can only rent yourself out it has to be rental it has to be rental yeah 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 so what we need is a right to buy
2: (laughs) Yeah, I've been renting here for a good 10 years now. <laughs> I think I've got enough for the deposit. <laughs> Imagine getting a mortgage on a person. And you're there going, I've not even
1: been paid for yet, but I'm still a slave. Jesus. I mean, more job security if they've got a mortgage on you.
2: Yeah. That means that, that they at least had a credit check.
1: <laughs> Someone had to inspect you for damp. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> that sounds great. There's a bank nationwide that's to come round with a yeah. pe- uh, clipboard. How moist is this guy? I mean, Sorry, he's absolutely riddled with rising <laughs> damp. <Yeah>. He's soaked. There's <laughs> black mold on his antlers. He's, I'm surprised he hasn't drowned.
0: <laughs> in the animal world, we have seen the vast majority of species live in societies and that they find in association the best arms for the struggle for life. The animal species in which individual struggle has been reduced to its narrowest limits and the practice of mutual aid has attained the greatest development are invariably the most numerous, the most prosperous. The mutual protection which is obtained in this case, the possibility of attaining old age and of accumulating experience The higher intellectual development and the further growth of sociable habits secure the maintenance of the species, its extension, its further progressive evolution. The unsociable species, on the contrary, are doomed to decay. Take crabs. I was struck in 1882 at the Brighton Aquarium with the extent of mutual assistance which these clumsy animals are capable of bestowing upon a comrade in case of need. One of them had fallen upon its back in a corner of the tank, and its heavy saucepan-like carapace prevented it from returning to its natural position. The more so, as there was in the corner an iron bar which rendered the task still more difficult. Its comrades came to the rescue, and for one hours time I watched how they endeavoured to help their fellow prisoner. They came to at once, pushed their friend from beneath, and after strenuous efforts succeeded in lifting it upright. then the iron bar would prevent them from achieving the work of rescue and the crab would again heavily fall upon its back. After many attempts one of the helpers would go in the depth of the tank and bring two other crabs which would begin with fresh forces the same pushing and lifting of their helpless comrade. We stayed in the aquarium for more than two hours and when leaving we again came to cast a glance upon the tank. The work of rescue still continued. Life in societies is the most powerful weapon in the struggle for life. Life in societies enables the feeblest insects, the feeblest birds and the feeblest mammals to resist or to protect themselves from the most terrible birds and beasts of prey. Therefore, while fully admitting that force, swiftness, protective colours, cunningness and endurance to hunger and cold are so many qualities making the individual or the species the fittest under certain circumstances. We maintain that, under any circumstances, sociability is the greatest advantage in the struggle for life.
1: The words of Peter Kropotkin from his book, Mutual Aid, a Factor of Evolution. Kropotkin used science and history to show that anarchism isn't naive or optimistic, but based on scientifically observable behaviour. His book explores the role of mutual aid, cooperation between both animals and humans. For Kropotkin, mutual aid has practical advantages for survival and, along with the conscience, has been promoted through natural selection. Hold on, does that mean the feeling of guilt is an evolutionary advantage? Because that's how I feel all the time. Kropotkin attacks the state and the principle of private property that it upholds as artificial, warping and suppressing humans' natural, sociable and cooperative tendencies. If you saw someone fall over, your instinct would be to help them. and the state will make you point and laugh and only help them up if they give you a sufficient Amazon voucher. Kropotkin's Mutual Aid is a masterpiece, recognised for its contributions to biology and developing a scientific anarchism to compete with Marxist historical materialism. It's also a comprehensive, clearly written debunking of social Darwinism. Get wrecked, my lickers. Kropotkin would have an amazing YouTube channel. So what is social Darwinism? Charles Darwin's Theory of Evolution basically invented biology, but the theory of evolution, although Charles Darwin didn't mean it this way, also provided the intellectual framework for a new kind of racism. Oops. Natural selection provided a scientific explanation and justification for the dominance of the white race. For imperialists, this was a big upgrade from the Christian mission to civilise the savages, the so-called white man's burden because it wasn't based on faith, but science, logic and reason. And it basically meant being horrible fucks to other peoples was good, actually. Imperialism was just the natural process of evolution. If Europeans didn't brutally conquer the world, they were betraying their race. Darwin's Origin of Species came out in 1859. Less than two decades later, the British Viceroy of India, Lord Lytton, used the notion of natural selection to justify starving millions of Indians to death. As millions died slowly of hunger, the Viceroy hosted a huge feast for Victoria's coronation as empress. In the countryside, parents sold their children for food. Others resorted to cannibalism, some to suicide. The famines in India in the 1870s were so bad because the British had dismantled traditional safety nets for reducing the impact of a famine. The commons were gone, and peasants were pushed to grow cash crops for export, for the market, all in the pursuit of maximum profit. During the famine, Lytton oversaw the export to England and America of a record 6.4 million hundredweight of wheat. In his letters, Lytton argued that intervening to stop these millions dying would be to interfere with nature. The famine was good, as it was removing the weak. Eventually, Lytton was pressured to take some action. He built labour camps where peasants would be given minute rations in exchange for hard labour. The death toll continued to rise in the camps, but now malnourished children, unable to work, were the quickest to die. Five and a half million Indians starved to death under British rule in the 1870s. Obviously, this is one of the worst crimes in British history. Hands up if you learn about it at school! This horrendous tragedy was not seen as such by the men who did it, but as an expression of the natural forces of evolution. Social Darwinism. The survival of the fittest. The rancid ideology of social Darwinism spread through the British elite like a virus. They loved it, but it also frightened them. They started to get scared that the working classes back in Britain outnumbered them. Racist books from the late 1800s don't just talk about white and black. They also warn of the Cockney race and the Scottish race. They drew up maps of where these inferior races lived so they could avoid them. Some race scientists dared to visit these areas, workhouses and prisons, to learn more. One of them was Charles Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton. Frankie G was brown in his pants because the underclass were reproducing faster than the wealthy. Social Darwinism was turned on its head. The least fit were surviving. He decided to work out how to reverse this trend, get evolution back on track. So he created a new science of human selective breeding to make sure the fittest survived. The best should multiply, the weakest should wither. He invented eugenics. Social Darwinism doesn't have to be full on eugenics, even though that's where it ended up. Social Darwinism also underlies mainstream thought about capitalism. The idea that capitalism is natural anything else is unnatural is social darwinist sure maybe there's some moral argument for welfare or education for the underclass a safety net but that doesn't take away from the fact that humans are naturally selfish our nature is competition and greed why would anyone do anything without the promise of profit socialism or anarchism is a nice idea but it'll never work because it's unnatural The fact that Kropotkin systematically demolished this idea, an idea that still gets trotted out today, in the 1890s is astounding. And Kropotkin's argument wasn't moral, it was scientific and historical. Providing example after example, from crabs to dung beetles to medieval peasants, Kropotkin showed that mutual aid is a dominant feature at every level of animal and human life. Cooperation is not the exception, but the rule. Despite hierarchy, despite capitalism, despite the state, people everywhere continue to practice mutual aid. In trade unions, in libraries, which Kropotkin's weirdly obsessed with, and of course, in revolution. Kropotkin was an international intellectual celebrity in his time, renowned in geography, biology and sociology. The main founder of the anarchist movements in England and Russia, but he shunned material success. Not just an aristocrat, but a prince and one-time aide to the Russian Tsar. This man devoted his life to anarchism and the better understanding of humanity. In 1899, Kropotkin visited Chicago, in America, and lived in Hull House, a kind of settlement commune, giant squat which covered like half a city block. Alice Hamilton, one of the workers at the settlement, said this about him. Prince Peter Kropotkin was one of the most lovable persons I have ever met. He was a typical revolutionist of the early Russian type, an aristocrat who threw himself into the movement for emancipation of the masses out of a passionate love for his fellow man and a longing for justice. He stayed some time with us at Hull House and we all came to love him. Not only we who lived under the same roof, but the crowds of Russian refugees who came to see him. No matter how down and out, how squalid even a caller would be, Prince Kropotkin would give him a joyful welcome and kiss him on both cheeks. Exiled from Russia, his home country, for his politics, Kropotkin returned after the 1917 revolution. He was 74 years old. He arrived before the Bolshevik Revolution overthrew the provisional government that had replaced the Tsar in February. The provisional government offered to make him Minister of Education, which, being an anarchist, he didn't want to do. He spent the rest of his life writing a history of ethics in an anarchist cooperative north of Moscow, where he died in 1921. His funeral, attended by thousands of admirers, grew into a demonstration against the abuses of the Bolshevik state. But within a year, anarchists were arrested, killed, or forced into hiding. Survival of the first, I guess. Kropotkin's funeral was the last time the Soviet Union allowed the black flag of anarchism to fly. I don't want to depress you, so let's end on one of my favorite quotes from one of Kropotkin's other famous books, The Conquest of Bread.
0: Those who man the lifeboat do not ask credentials from the crew of a sinking ship. They launch their boat, risk their lives and the raging waves and sometimes perish, all to save men whom they do not even know. And what need to know them? They are human beings and they need our aid. That is enough. That establishes their right to the rescue.
1: Mandatory Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our title theme was created by Ella Jean, with additional music by Jack Evans, that's me, and as Sean's crab story, Johannes Brahms variations on a theme by Hayden performed by Neil and Nancy O'Doan. You also heard Amy Gledhill in the role of Peter Kropotkin. Comes his live on November the 27th at the Pier Hat in Manchester, oh, that's next Wednesday, and on December the 2nd at Lolchevism in Leeds. Farewell.